For the past 25 years, Bordeaux Index has been relentless in our focus on changing the fine wine market for collectors and investors. Today, we are the largest seller of fine wine and spirits globally. Bordeaux Index. Join us and visit BordeauxIndex.com. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we are delighted to be joined by Alexander Downer. Alexander is an Australian former politician and diplomat who was leader of the Liberal Party from 1994 to 1995, Minister for Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2007, and High Commissioner to the United Kingdom from 2014 to 2018. He is currently Executive Chair of the International School for Government at King's College London and Chairman of the UK think tank Policy Exchange. Alexander, welcome to Table Talk. Alexander, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your first memories of food? Well, I was breastfed, but I don't have any recollection of that. My first memories of food are much more breakfast when I was a child. We lived on a farm and we had dairy cows. And so we had fresh milk and, you know, unpasteurized milk. It was just the milk taken from the cows. So that was a bit defining. And so for breakfast, we would have things with milk. So porridge with milk and sugar. Sounds very unhealthy now. Or cornflakes with cream, milk and sugar. Or shredded wheat. In more recent years, shredded wheat became available. The same with the milk, the cream and the sugar. I mean, these are terrible things to eat. But I remember having those kinds of meals, really, as a child. I mean, in Australia, in South Australia, we would have had pretty standard then very traditional English meals. So we didn't have much by way of, you know, continental or Asian food. We had a lot of chops, lamb chops, roast lamb, roast potatoes, those kinds of things. Peas, delicious peas, fresh peas. But that kind of very traditional food we had when I was a child. And were you involved as a child in the sort of day-to-day chores of the farm? No, not at all, no. (laughs) I was at school. (laughs) I've never really taken much to farming. It's never... I'm quite interested in it and interested in agricultural economics and issues like that. But the actual physical task of farming has never really particularly appealed to me. So we had sheep and we had dairy cows. And so at milking time, and I didn't go to milking time in the morning because it was like five o'clock in the morning, but in the evening at milking time, I used to find it quite interesting to watch the cows being milked. Of course, they were milked by, even in those days when I was a child, they were milked by machines, not by hand. And um, uh, as for the sheep, no, I didn't really have any interest in the sheep at all. I hate to say that being an Australian. It seems almost unpatriotic to say I had no interest in sheep, but sheep have never really excited me. And Alexander, what about school food? What, What are your memories of school food? So first of all, when I went to primary school, it was a day school, my mother would give me a packed lunch. So that would just be sandwiches and 
I liked uh, something called Vegemite sandwiches. So Vegemite is an Australian version of Marmite. It's a great deal nicer than Marmite because it's made from vegetables. But it's it looks very much the same. So, you know, Vegemite sandwiches were a, a particular favourite of mine. Now, in Australia, as I think was the case in the UK as well, children at primary school used to get free school milk. So crates of milk were brought and put outside the classroom at morning recess time. And I remember the milk particularly because I was one of the few children there who just loved milk. You know how people tell stories about the milk went sour as the day wore on or you get bottles that were days old left lying around and so on. And free school milk was a waste of time and money. And I know in the UK, Margaret Thatcher, as the education secretary, abolished free school milk. And I think many children were pleased about that. But I loved the free school milk, so I have a particular memory of that. And you used to be able to buy a straw which would have flavouring in it so you could suck up the milk through the straw and the milk would come out as strawberry or chocolate milk because within the straw there was a a, a thing that created the flavour. I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but all I can say is I really loved it. So I remember that very favourably. And were mealtimes important to your family growing up? Were they an occasion where you all came together? Yes, I think they, uh, not breakfast. And lunch, of course, when I was growing up, we were mainly at school. So we didn't much have lunch together. Lunch was, well, you know, right up until I went to boarding school and even during the school holidays, we wouldn't really all sit down for lunch very often. But in the evening, we would all sit around together, yes, and talk about our days and listen to my father lecturing us on the the good things and the bad things of life. He was a very wise and opinionated person, <laughs> but he certainly a man given to very strong opinions, which he, he liked to share with us all. As he used to say, he was a wise man and he'd like to share his wisdom with all of us. <laughs> which he duly did. Uh, and I have three sisters, so I remember us all sitting around uh, in the evening having meals together. Traditional meals, you know, very traditional meals. What sticks in my mind are lamb chops, mashed potatoes and peas. That sticks in my mind. Your father was High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, as you later then became. What, what are your memories of... English or British food? So British food was very much like uh, traditional South Australian food at the time. Although if you were British, you might put that the other way around and say the South Australians brought British food to South Australia with them, which is, of course, what happened. So my recollections of British food in the 60s and 70s were that Britain had a reputation for having sort of fairly average food. So the beef was all overcooked. The meat was often well and truly overcooked. The vegetables were sort of stodgy and traditional. There were no exciting sauces. I think what was good about English food were the puddings, really. That was Great Britain's gastronomic USP. It's puddings. There were nice puddings that I can remember very well from that period. But as for the generality of food, I, I would say over my lifetime, it's extraordinary how the quality of food in the UK has improved. It's just, uh, it's amazing, really. 
from private households who have embraced quite elaborate um, European cuisine and Asian cuisine through to the restaurants. I mean, the array of restaurants in London and the quality of the restaurants is equal to anywhere else in the world. And you went to Newcastle University for your undergraduate. Were you cooking for yourself at that point or relying on sort of traditional student food? What was it like? So I was in a hall of residence and they provided meals and they were, yes, very basic meals. I went to boarding school before that too. So it was more of a continuation of the the same thing. I mean, there were things that both at school and university and the university refectory and and at school that I really loved, which are incredibly bad for you, like baked beans on fried bread was, I think, one of the most delicious things imaginable. In fact, I don't think I've had baked beans on fried bread for 40 or 50 years, but just talking about them now, it makes my mouth water. I just found them so delicious. Equally, um, unequally, I absolutely hated rice pudding and bread and butter pudding. I absolutely loathe them. And I still do to this very day. I mean, I was saying earlier that the British are known for their excellent puddings, but those two, <laughs> those two British puddings were two that I didn't like at all. And I remember them from school and uh, less so from university. University started to get into things like, you know, a lot of sandwiches and a lot of pies and junk food like that. I think it's when I really took up junk food when I was a student. And um, I'm sure Newcastle still sells a great deal of junk food as well as excellent food. And they sold a lot of junk food in those days. But of course, for a student, it's cheap. And that was always a factor. Just next to the university, there's a street called Northumberland Street, still there. And um, there are a lot of places there you could buy hamburgers and fish fingers and things like that. Gosh, honestly, as I think about it, I think I mainly ate that sort of junk food when I wasn't in a hall of residence. So when I went and lived in a house with four other students in my last year, one of them was very keen. He was very keen on cooking. And he would cook all sorts of different things. He was keen on cooking, but he wasn't very gifted at it. But it was good enough for us. And we just sat down and ate whatever he served up. You know, it was a lot of spaghetti bolognese and things like that. Standard sort of fare. But um, he did the cooking in the main and we all did the washing up. So that was a reasonable compromise. And after university, you went fairly quickly into the diplomatic service. And I imagine in diplomacy, food must play a kind of vital role. Can you talk us a bit through that relationship? Yes, I mean, I think it is extremely important, by the way. And I think an ambassador who has a good kitchen, as they say, is going to attract more high-level guests to her or his dinners and lunches than one who has a reputation for poor food. I think it can be really important So my first posting was in Brussels to the Australian mission to the European Union. And I don't think there is a city in the world that has better food than Brussels. So the diplomatic circuit had to compete with the absolutely magnificent restaurants of Brussels. 
I can still remember them, their names today. Comchezois, uh, the Villa Lorraine, uh, the Maison de Cygne. I remember these restaurants and I guess they must be still going. I don't know whether they're so good anymore, but they were in those days. And so, it, you know, in a way, the diplomatic circuit had to compete with that quality of food. You know, when I've been back in Australia and going to lunches and dinners with ambassadors, there were always embassies that served up particularly delicious meals. I mean, you know, it's a cliche to say so, but it was always true. The French ambassador always had a good cuisine. So it was always a pleasure to be invited to lunch or dinner with the French ambassador. So then I became the foreign minister myself. And Obviously, as a foreign minister, you have to do a lot of entertaining. And in my case, of course, that was mainly in Canberra. So we had a specific dining room carved out in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade there. And we really worked hard on making sure that we had high quality meals. So they weren't particularly what you might call traditional Australian meals. They were often Maybe modern Australian, which in modern Australian cuisine is more Eurasian, so retains much of the traditional European menus, but mixed with Asian flavours. So we would work really hard on getting the caterers to produce high quality meals there. I think it's just really important. It's not just the meals, it's the drinks as well. You know, make sure it's champagne, not Prosecco, unless you're Italian, in which case you will definitely be promoting Prosecco uh, for understandable reasons. But otherwise, if you're going to serve sparkling wine, make it champagne. Otherwise, people think, well, you're, you're doing it on the cheap. And that's not a good look for a country to be seen to be doing things on the cheap. And give us a flavour of that modern Australian cuisine. What kind of dishes would you say typify that Eurasian dining that that you would be sort of showcasing Australia's best best produce with? So you would use traditional Australian meats, but it might be veal, you know, rather than just having chunky steaks. So nowadays there's a qualifier to this, which I can come back to. But nowadays, if it were a high class dinner or you go into a top restaurant, it may be um, Japanese-ized, meaning that you would have or Thai or whatever. So you might it might be a curry, but it wouldn't be a typical green Thai curry. It'd be something that would be using Australian ingredients, but some of the flavour of of Asia in that food. Um, so if you had your veal, well, you know it would be the vegetables that would be Asian vegetables. There's a lot of Asian influence that's crept into Australian cuisine in recent times. And so Australian cuisine has become, I wouldn't say unique was quite the right word, but it's certainly carving out um, a character of its own. Alexander, you must have met lots of interesting people during your political life. If you were to have your dream dinner party and bring together, say, three or four of those people, who would you want to bring together for a reunion dinner? Well, I mean, without going back through history and having Jesus Christ and Julius Caesar and whoever, Henry VIII at your dinner, but just to think about people in more recent times, 
people who I have had lunches and dinners with who've turned out to be very entertaining colleagues at the dinner. There's somebody I would single out, and that's George W. Bush. George Bush, I mean, whatever the media may have thought of him, good or bad, and the media, uh, a lot of the media really savaged him as being thick and bumbling and so on. I suppose they always do with the Republicans. He was actually an incredibly amusing and entertaining person to spend time with. Very funny guy, very quick, very chatty and very informal, uh, very unpretentious for a man who in those days was the president of the United States of America. I found him a fantastic person to have a meal with. Of course, I didn't do it very often, but I did um, three or four times. So I'd single him out as somebody who would be worth having dinner with. I had dinner one evening in Paris with Jacques Cousteau. So I think, wow, how interesting this is going to be. I was so excited to be meeting Jacques Cousteau. Um, I don't know a lot about the world underwater, although I can swim. Um, but as it turned out, he was very old and very quiet. <laughs> So he didn't exactly set the dinner alight. But the fact of having had dinner with him is one that I remember very well as uh, being worthwhile just to say that I had dinner with him. So, yeah, all sorts of, it's hard to know. You'd have to get me to think about a question like that for quite some period of time and uh, draw up a list. Sometimes the most surprising people, here would be a broad observation I'd make without naming people in the negative. Sometimes the most surprising people who are great popular figures in the media, when you actually sit with them, can be incredibly uninteresting and uninspiring. And I've certainly found that with a number of sort of Hollywood stars. So I've had meals with, I've been at meals with, it's probably the right, right way to put it, with a number of Australian Hollywood stars. And some of them are really entertaining, but honestly, they're often so disappointing. These people come across very well on the screen, but when you actually, when they have to write their own script sitting with you, they can sometimes be a little dry. But I don't know, Hugh Jackman, he is a very entertaining person to have dinner with. I had dinner with him once in New York. Very entertaining guy. Very charming. But I can think of a couple of actresses who are well known who were pretty heavy going. Better to have a script writer for those people, I'd say. So I don't know. That is a long ramble and doesn't really answer your question, which everybody's answer is William Shakespeare, Henry VIII, Jesus Christ, Julius Caesar, Napoleon. Uh, because I can speak French, Napoleon would have been interesting to have. Uh, dinner with, I, I suppose. Winston Churchill was apparently very interesting to have at dinner, although he would just talk. It was just a monologue. But it would have been an interesting one. And away from your professional dining commitments, what do you like to eat when you're at home? Do, do you cook? Uh, I can use a microwave and I can turn the oven up to 180 to 200 and put a Charlie Bigger meal in there for 25 minutes and then tip it out and eat it off a plate. 
Uh, my wife does all the cooking. She's um, she's very good at cooking. Uh, she comes from North Derbyshire. So I don't know that you would rush to North Derbyshire or historically have rushed to North Derbyshire for a, a top line meal. Although nowadays there are some excellent restaurants up in that part of the country. But anyway, she was a very traditional cook and she makes all sorts of things, really. She gets cookbooks and she copies recipes out of cookbooks. So there's quite a variety of meals that are forthcoming. So the basic deal is that, and that, that has been forever, um, that she cooks the meals and I do the washing up and the tidying up afterwards. And we're happy with that because she actually prefers to cook to washing up and tidying up. And I don't mind doing the washing up and the tidying up. But um, when she's away, I will go to the supermarket and buy a ready-to-eat meal if I'm not going out. That's what I would do because I couldn't be bothered to get a whole lot of ingredients and start chopping them up and so on. So years ago, my children used to say that I couldn't cook. And I said to them, anyone can cook. You just need a recipe. You need to go to the supermarket, buy the ingredients, and then follow the recipe. And they said, well, I couldn't do it. So I made them veal parmigiana, I remember. It's, veal parmigiana is a bit of a favourite in Australian pubs. A palmy, as they're known in Australia. And in fact, some pubs in Australia have a palmy night. It might be a Friday night where veal parmigiana is sold. They're huge pieces of veal sold at discounted rates and in huge volumes to hungry punters. Anyway, I said I, I could cook a veal parmigiana and I did and I proved my point. Yes, if I could be bothered, I could get a recipe book um, follow the recipe, look at the recipe, get the ingredients, and then follow the details of how to cook it. And I reckon it would turn out all right. But honestly, I mean, I hate to say it on a program like this, but I just couldn't be bothered. I would rather just stick something, if I'm just on my own, stick something in the oven that's already prepared and take it out and just eat it uh, while I'm watching television or reading. I'd rather that. Sounds great. And you can't go wrong with Charlie Bingham's. Alexander, just taking you back to your time as the High Commissioner in London, were there certain London restaurants that you gravitated towards and sort of took guests to when they were over? So there was a restaurant just near Australia House in the Strand, well, it's still there, called Spring, which was started by an Australian woman called Sky Gingell. And I used to... She's use... been on the podcast. Oh, has she? Well, so I used to use that restaurant a lot because it was Australian. And then there's another Australian restaurant in Notting Hill, I guess it is, the Ledbury, which uh, I think it closed for a while. I'm not sure whether it might have reopened now. But it was a fantastic, a Michelin star restaurant. I don't think Spring has a Michelin star, but it is a really good restaurant. And the Ledbury, I used to love that restaurant. It was very hard to get into. You had to book weeks and weeks in advance. So there was a, the owner, I think he was not, uh, the chef and owner came from Newcastle in New, as in not Newcastle on Tyne, Newcastle in New South Wales. And Sky Gingell, she comes from 
a very famous family, media family, really, in Sydney. When Malcolm Turnbull came here as the Australian Prime Minister, Theresa May was the Prime Minister, and Theresa May had a lunch for Malcolm Turnbull, which I went to, at 10 Downing Street and got Sky Gingell to come and cook the lunch. So, you know, it was quite something. So Spring, a very good restaurant. I give that a bit of a promotion. It's really a very good restaurant, but it's, it's what you'd call a European restaurant, I suppose. And you mentioned English puddings earlier. Would you say you have a sweet tooth? Yes, I do. But, I mean, I'm one of those people who has a tendency to just eat and drink too many nice things and then go to fat and then have to go on a a really painful diet to try to get my weight down again, which is, by the way, what I'm doing at the moment. I'm following some diet which is called Noom, where you write down all the calories that um, you've consumed at every meal. At the end of the day, you can see how many calories you've consumed and then you can make a calculation on what that effect will have on your weight. So uh, psychologically, it helps If you count all the calories, it helps you to drive down the number of calories you eat. So it makes you thinner. This is the logic of the Noom system. So I'm going through that at the moment. But otherwise, yes, I mean, there are all sorts of puddings that I like. You know, funnily enough, one of the puddings I like the most is one that you only get once a year, and that's Christmas pudding. Christmas pudding with brandy butter lots of brandy butter, because I love brandy butter, and cream. I mean, how bad is that for you? The NHS would just go crazy hearing me say these things. I just love it. It it is arguably an Australian pudding, actually, a pavlova. If you know what a pavlova is, meringue and cream and fruit and so on, it's absolutely delicious. just must be so bad, so much cream. Meringues can't be very good for you either. But you know what I say? The NHS and the Chief Medical Officer of England would never thank me for this. But in a free society, you should be able to say what you want. And I say, if I'm going to die two years early because I've eaten so many delicious things, I would rather that than just eat, you know, carrots and broccoli at every meal so that I would, and just drink water, so that I would live, you know, forever or two years longer. I'd rather die younger, not much younger, but rather die a bit younger and enjoy my pavlovas and Christmas puddings. Mince pies. says Christmas has lots of delicious things. Mince pies are really delicious, but you have to open them up and pour brandy into them and then put cream on top of them. So bad, isn't it? If you come from the north like I do, you have them with cheese, and that's even worse. Cheese? Yeah, Christmas cake and mince pies with cheese. Christmas cake is delicious, isn't it, with thick icing, that sort of almond icing that some people make. That is really nice. Christmas food is great, actually. Christmas food is really good. (laughs) And Alexander, just to finish on, we we sort of try and rephrase this question because it was sort of a mixture of what's your desert island meal and what would your last meal be? But what would be your sort of ultimate meal if you had one meal left? (laughs) Gosh, I'd have to spend a lot of time thinking about that. I think for starters, this is just so embarrassing to tell you this. 
But for starters, and everyone in my family mocks me over this, I still don't think you can go past a really well-made prawn cocktail <laughs> with Mary Rose sauce. Honestly, you just can't. I am very much with you. But it's regarded as very 1960s, 1970s, passe, how common that you like prawn cocktails. There's no point in abusing me in that way. It's not going to change my mind. I still love prawn cocktail. So if you got my last meal ever, I think I would have some oysters and champagne just to start with. Sydney rock oysters. But the oysters here in the UK are very good. So I would have some oysters and champagne. Uh, then I have a prawn cocktail. I love steak, by the way. So it's my last ever meal. I'm not worried about how much it costs. I'd have a Wagyu steak, sort of a bit better, slightly better cooked than rare. And then um, I'm getting quite full. Lots of nice vegetables. Peas. I love peas. Baked potatoes. I like baked potatoes. So I think that would be quite good to have. And have sour cream in the baked potatoes. I like that. I'm worried that this is going to be like my last meal, so I'm, I'm not going to be concentrating so much on my meal as my imminent death. So then I'm getting to the end. I'm getting to the end of the meal. So I think I'm going to have. Gosh, that's a hard one. I said I think I'm going to have a a huge piece of pavlova, and then you know a glass of Chateau Yquem with it, and that's it. <laughs> a coffee, an espresso. I think that sounds like the perfect meal. Can I join you? <laughs> You're both very welcome. Fab. Well, Alexander, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. It's a pleasure.